Hello and welcome to the second episode of the Booming Book Club with your host Lucy Osborne and today we will actually be joined with one of my good friends Sophie as she was actually the person that told me about this book because I had no idea it existed which is sort of sad in a way because the book we're looking at today is the prequel to The Hunger Games. Now I was an avid Hunger Games fan I had behind the scenes books for the films, you know, I'd read up on all of the little factual bits. I think there's like a a Hunger Games Wikipedia about all of the different game makers and the old victors and stuff. It's actually a bit embarrassing how much of that I have now forgotten. So the book is called The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes by Suzanne Collins, who is, of course, the original author of the Hunger Games books. I won't lie, the title of the book isn't entirely relatable to the book itself, but to be honest, the cover itself is so disappointing. It's just... The original Hunger Games book covers are so classy, and this one just looks a bit tacky, to be honest. But in a sense, I think this book, because it's a prequel, is less a labour of love like the original trilogy and more a moneymaker. However, this is actually one of the best books I've read in a while, which I did not expect. It was a really pleasant surprise, actually, because it was truly a joy to read. When I finished reading it, I said to my boyfriend that it was it was the first book in ages that I didn't want to end. I think that is a sign of how, you know, it's a really good book. And I don't think it's just because I wasn't reading it for uni, because... Some of the other books I've been reading recently, I just, I can't be bothered to finish them. I think life is too short to read books you don't like, but unfortunately, the nature of my degree means I do have to do that quite a lot. So I was quite surprised it was a prequel. As I've said, it does just seem like a money-making machine, but in a way, it does appear to be better written than the original trilogy. I don't know if that's because... Suzanne Collins now has more experience as a writer and she's been writing more and she's matured or because we as readers are probably now more astute and able to recognise good writing because when I read the Hunger Games books I must have been pretty young like a pre-tween or early teenager at best. I actually remember my brother coming back from seeing the first film. I don't think we'd ever read or heard of the books before he went to see the film, and he was gobsmacked. He was so shell-shocked. He said it was literally the best thing he'd ever seen. So I think I did actually see the film before I read the book, but that didn't take anything away from the books. The books are still just so good. People are often kind of rude towards, towards young adult fiction. I think they don't give it the credit this deserves, so I hope this book can help change that I'm not it won't I won't lie it's not the best book that's ever been written but I think her simple language is perfect for the narrative because if you made it really flowery and like in comparison to last week's book by Fitzgerald obviously he's so famous for his intricate descriptions if that was in this book it just would not work with the narrative because it's so much more fast-paced and I guess that is the nature of a dystopian novel it, it is definitely more simplistic and straightforward which is nice in a way because it makes it more accessible to other people so the basic premise of the book I think is really cool I think it is 
the best option they could have done if they were going to make a prequel. So it follows President Snow's life from the original Hunger Games trilogy. It, it begins when he is 18 and it's it must be about a decade since the war ended and the Snow family have fallen from grace. They used to be really rich and now they're living in this penthouse apartment in the capital. Of course, they have their roses on the top. You know, snow falls on top and all. That phrase is repeated so many times in the book and it freaks me out. Um, but now they've fallen from grace. They're poor. Some people had to resort to cannibalism in the war. I was really shocked at how dire the war was in the capital, let alone the district. So it begins when he's 18. And so his name is Coriolanus Snow, if you don't know. And he becomes a mentor for the District 12 tribute, Lucy Gray, for the Hunger Games, because he is a student at a place called the Academy, which is just a good school in the capital. And they get loads of students to be the mentors for the tributes, as opposed to in the original trilogy, obviously it's the uh, prior district's victors that sort of mentor them, which is a far better idea. If you read the book, you will see why having students dictate the lives of fellow children it's just a dreadful idea really um so he actually implements the betting and sending gifts into the arena so for example in the hunger games katniss receives things like food and burn cream and it was actually snow's own idea which i think is amazing because he's only 18 at the start of the book and the fact they implement this it is quite cool that the game makers do actually listen to the children. It is one of the few good things they, they do. So the tribute it follows is Lucy Gray from District 12. And before she goes into the arena, her and Snow share a kiss. I think we all saw it coming. They have a lot of flirtatious energy between them. And in the actual games, he unfairly aids her. So... He put a handkerchief in a crate of snakes so that they wouldn't attack her because they would recognise her scent, which is, it's really very clever. You can't blame him. You can't fault his genius. He is startlingly clever, which I think makes him even more terrifying. Because, for example, Donald Trump is terrifying. So he has so much power. However, he is stupid. So it does take some of the power away from him. But Snow, he's so clued up. So the game makers and the principal of his school discover that he unfairly aided her in the games. So he's banished to become a peacekeeper. And of course, he chooses District 12 and the hope he'll be reunited with Lucy Gray. They do. And then they fall in love. It's all lovey-dovey. And then one of his fellow students and mentors, Sejanus, he attempts to become a rebel. Snow basically stops it by recording him with a Jabber Jay and then Sejanus gets executed and then Snow and Lucy Gray try to run away and then it all just goes to pot. He gets rescued by Dr. Gaul and the rest is history. He studies at university and then works his way up to being president. So it is, quite a lot does happen in the book. It is a pretty long book. It's about 500 pages or so. So I won't lie, I was actually quite impressed with myself when I managed to bash it out in about a week. Uh, but it is a pretty easy read, which is nice. It's not something you have to concentrate on too much, apart from all of the names. 
but we're now going to be joined by my friend Sophie and we'll be discussing a bit more about our favourite parts of the book and she actually has some really interesting insights on the book. Okay, so now I'm joined by my lovely friend Sophie. Hello. Who first told me about this book actually because you spontaneously bought it when we were re-watching the films the other week, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, we watched like the whole trilogy and then um, one of our flatmates said that um, they'd released a prequel and I was straight on Amazon Prime <laughs> and I bought it, which is, you know, thank you Jeff Bezos. And yeah, I read it in about, I don't know, three weeks or so, like on top of all my uni stuff. I just could not put it down. I was surprised by how much I actually enjoyed it because I read the original book such a long time ago and I loved them at the time, but I thought reading the prequel, it might just be a bit naff. Yeah, I think I literally must have been about 12 when I read it yeah. for the first time. And I sort of had always thought of The Hunger Games very fondly. And then when we rewatched the films, just all the emotion came yeah, flooding Yeah, they're back. actually really They're good. really well written. <laughs> like, when Rue dies, oh, my yeah, heart. And, like, you think for... I don't know. I feel like I think about YA novels and I'm like, oh, well... It's it, easy to discredit them. Yeah, and it's just... It's more the nostalgia than the writing. But actually, this book, like the plot was just so well written and Mm. the right amount of twists and turns, I feel. I think it is a more difficult read than the original books, which I think is actually quite nice because it's definitely the same audience that has now sort of grown up that are reading them. It's tailored very well to Mm. the same people. Yeah. Like, not the the same generation rather than the same age bracket, if that makes sense. Like, she clearly wanted us, age 19, to read it. Mm Mm-hmm. But, yeah, no, I did really, really enjoy it. It was a very happy surprise because I read so many just heavy books. It was so nice to have something more lighthearted. But it was still really quite disturbing, actually. Yes, it was very graphic. Like, I don't find violence in films particularly horrible. But reading the descriptions in this, I was like, oh, it made I, me stop for a minute. I had forgotten how violent some mm-hmm. of her writing is. Yeah. Yes. She writes it quite simply, though, so it is very impactful, I would say, rather than over-describing it. Yes, it's very much... The plot tells itself. Mm. It's the only thing I would say, is that it's not... She doesn't have massive creativity in terms of the words she uses Mm -hmm. or, like, literary devices, but she writes such a good storyline. Yeah, I think her narrative style is just amazing. Yeah, exactly. What, like, do you think it was better than the originals, or...? I think the originals got better like, written as the series went on, so I think this sort of tops it off. Like, I yeah. thought Mockingjay was very well written, and then this one as well. Yeah, I mean, bit of character growth of Suzanne Collins yeah. there. <laughs> I, um, I kind of agree, I think. Actually, no, I definitely agree. It's definitely <laughs> more better written than the first ones. Mm-hmm. Definitely more, like sophisticated yeah i just found it really weird at the start that i actually really liked the child version of president snow i was like i should not like him yes i it was bizarre went into the book having just watched the films and seeing mm. how evil he was and going into the book and immediately like hating this character that actually yeah. he hadn't done all of these awful things at this point because he started off at the beginning he really wasn't that keen on the capital no, no. So it's kind of disturbing seeing how he just turns into this, like, addicted, powerful monster by the end. Yeah, it's very much like he became power-hungry. Mm. And 
Well, the other thing, I did not realise that Tigris was his cousin. Yeah, I kept thinking maybe, but I didn't know if the timelines would match up or not. But it's just mad how they had the same childhood and yet they went in completely different directions. Well, and the fact that in Mockingjay, you know, when they like take refuge at her mm-hmm. house, she says that President Snow didn't think that she was pretty enough anymore. And this is a girl that basically raised, raised him. him. And she sacrificed everything for him. And his character development, he was just able to dismiss her because he no longer fit what he needed yeah because she was really a mother figure to him because their grandmother just seems so not yeah not really mother it's the way they call her the grandmom not like their grandma it's not grandma yeah the grandma it's just so impersonal it's kind of freaky like she has her roses and yeah that's it i think because she's so disheartened at the wealth they've lost Yes, I suppose, like, the rest of them, because he grew up in the war, he didn't see it, like, mm. in the same way that she did. Yeah, because he's younger, isn't he? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Do you have a favourite character in the book? I know they're all kind of horrible. Yeah, like, this is the thing, is that I know this is the case with, like, every single book, but every (laughs) character had something that I just could not stand. Like, Sejanus was just infuriating all the way through. Oh, he was definitely not my favourite character, because I don't... I mean, obviously... I'm on his side in the sense that I think, obviously, as a modern, like, non-dystopian reader, <laughs> you can tell that what the capital does is shocking, yeah. and I don't condone any kind of organised violence. <laughs> That's but, good to know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, um, like, just the way he went about it, when, when he went into the arena, I was just it's like, so why stupid. would you do that? You just wouldn't. I nearly did stop reading because I was like, did this you? is ridiculous. <laughs> this is ridiculous. Nobody in their right mind would do it. Actually, maybe Sir Janus's mum was my favourite character. Oh, she was so cute. Like, she just wants to bake cookies for everybody. <laughs> she just wants her little boy to be happy. Yeah. And she clearly is not capital born and bred no, like she's Sejanus, so overwhelmed but she seemed to be able to just go with the slightly i suppose more mature attitude that like that's just the way the world is yeah he just sort of threw his toys out the pram and wouldn't like accept the privilege that was handed to him although does that make him a stronger character then the fact that he wasn't just willing to sit i guess his privilege because he does want to help the rebels and i mean ultimately that leads to his death but mm. he does want to make a change for the better. Yeah, so his morals are in the right place, but he was just so, so infuriating the whole way So through. was Lucy Gray. Yes. She just, it's like, she was trying to be so hard to be edgy and different. <laughs> she it's... was such a pick-me <laughs> yeah. girl the whole way through. I thought, that's exactly like, what oh, I thought. Oh, I've got my guitar. I can sing my to this snake. No, I did like her though. And I liked her background. Yeah. And I think as well before this, I had never thought about what happens outside of the district? Well, I don't really think there was an outside. I don't know if District no. 13 counts as outside, outside of the district. But... Yeah. Because when, you know, she's saying that she's from the Covey and they travelled around, they didn't really have a home. Well, then I did feel quite bad for her because she'd been sort of thrust into this... District society. Yeah, this district mm. society that her and her group had never been a part of and then she gets shucked into the Hunger Games. Mm. Like... Yeah. Did you think she should have won? I kind of didn't want her to win because I knew when I started the book that she was going to win. Like, there was no way that she couldn't for the narrative to keep going forwards. I feel 
like oh, I can't even remember the tribute's names now, but the one who climbed up the pole and just slept on the beam for like days. Yes. I thought they were gonna win. I to be honest, I didn't think that she was gonna win the whole way through. Really? Because, because I thought that that would be like too obvious. His, well, yeah, a bit obvious, and also like that would be Coriolanus's like breaking point. Like, there's mm. no good in the world. The love of my life has just <laughs> been murdered by yeah. the society. I want other people to suffer, and that's why he became power crazy. I just think, I know it's not all about brute strength and things Mm. like that, but, I mean, imagine either of us going into the (laughs) games. That's what I imagine. We just have to be tactical with, like, the rat poison and stuff. This is the other thing, which I know with a reason he got sent to be a peacekeeper as well. It wasn't fair. No. It wasn't fair. It was not a fair fight. No. Also... Slight plot hole <laughs> in that they always said in the like the first three books mm. that um Hamish was the only District 12 victor, but that's yeah. not true. Maybe I- they discounted her because they erased um all of the records of this Hunger Games. Yes, and she did disappear, so it doesn't look good on them. No. They can't control everybody. They can't even control the people that they put in the games, yeah. you know, let alone... Although I guess as well, she hadn't written this book when she wrote... Very true. Sorry, she didn't know but it was yeah, going to be is successful a good point. enough to warrant yeah. a prequel. <laughs> it's like, how can I mince more money out yeah. of it? Because she couldn't do one at the end of Mockingjay. That just wouldn't work. No, because, I mean, everything's everything's happy at the end well kind of i mean they're mentally disturbed but yeah but I mean, some he lose some. Yeah. yeah exactly yes what do you think between about um Coriolanus and lucy gray like do you think it was i mean it clearly wasn't an appropriate relationship no again i could see it coming right from the beginning um but it felt very much like a first love scenario very much lust rather than actually being in love with each other like their idea of running away was so fanciful they hadn't actually worked out any of the details i mean it was very sweet though yeah there was part of me that was just so like nostalgic like <laughs> you know when you're like 16 and you mm. think that you're so grown up and you're like yeah of course we could run away into the woods and survive in that we can hut. eat worms and light fire and yeah i was i was quite sad in the end when they were trying to kill each other essentially yeah at i the felt end. worst for lucy gray there because i think she did genuinely love him i think he loved her as well but I think yeah. I think she was probably crazy. Do you think? Yeah. I mean, you would be. You, she'd been exposed well, yeah, to all of this absolute, like, serious, serious trauma. It's not even as if before the Hunger Games she'd had such a sweet, like, angelic life. No, no, it, she'd had a hard mm. life. And to be fair, if I was in her position, I'd probably try to kill Coriolanus. Yeah, I'd have been so angry. I just want to know what happened to him I want to know what he felt because mm, I feel like we never really find out his true feelings no and I suppose that's the point isn't it is that yeah. even in like the the first three books President Snow is it's just so cryptic yeah. the whole way through and you never know what he's thinking and even when he says to Katniss like we'd never lie to each other mm. and things like that it's still quite I don't know I'd be interested to see 
more detail about how he actually came to be president. I was just thinking that. I can't remember the name of the president in this book, but he Snow's not related to them at all. Yeah, no, so, it's, a, it's a rise to power yeah. through the ranks almost. Which is quite impressive, really. Although like, I suppose he does still have the... Um, the status of being a snow, even if yeah, he has fallen. Like, he is an heir, I suppose. And they say the whole way through, like, snow always lands on top. Oh, that's freaky. Yeah, that is freaky. Especially <sighs> because then he, he did land on top. Mm-hmm. It's horrible. But I suppose he has the... Is it the plinths? He has yes. their inheritance as well. Yes, oh, that's so horrible. Do. Like, he literally killed their son. I mean, obviously not with his own bare hands, but... But, um, yeah, he was the cause. Yeah, and then... Oh... Yeah. The other thing I thought was interesting is actually, like, so Coriolanus, and you know when he's a peacekeeper and he sees that, um, the hanging mm. of the rebel, and he's horrified by it, and he says, like, his stomach's turning, and he can't, he hates all that violence, mm. and when, um, the, uh, mentor's throat gets slit at the beginning, yeah, he hates it all, but then in his reign of power, you know, like, in the first, second, third books, there's still loads of public executions, like, he was so against it, but then yeah. in his power continued it, and I wonder it's why horrifying. that was. It must be because he's sort of given up on the hope of any sense of humanity, and I don't think he believes any human can be inherently good. Well, Dr. Gall always said that humans, you know, without a society, are left to be animals. Which oh, she I is just horrible. She's so scary. She creeped me out so much. But, like, you can tell that... I mean... The way that Suzanne Collins has written it is that that is true. Mm. Is that everything descends into chaos mm-hmm. if you're put in a in an arena <laughs> with twelve other sixteen year olds trying yeah. to kill each other. I mean, I wonder if that would be what happened if we didn't have a society now. It does make you think, doesn't it? Mm. If there weren't so many like societal rules in place on us, it would would we? Would I? I kill wonder you? if it changes them as well because they know it's being broadcast. Like, if yes. nobody ever found out what happened in the arena, I wonder if it would change. Although, it being broadcast, they still didn't find out everything that happened in the arena. Yeah, that's, like, nobody, I find that really freaky. Nobody, nobody knew that Sejanus went into the arena. They yeah. turned off all the lights. And Coriolanus almost died, and nobody, nobody knew. knew. But that is scary. Like, the censorship of the media mm-hmm. is terrifying. It's interesting as well how Coriolanus came up with the idea with the betting and stuff and then obviously we see that in the original trilogy it was quite cool to see how he implemented some of the most famous parts of the games yes exactly well I was quite interested to see how the games was in its like most formative years I was surprised how unpopular it was I mean it I always thought it was so strange in the first three books how many people loved it yeah. Because why on earth would you want to watch children I suppose it explains the progression more. But why on earth they thought getting school children in as mentors was a good idea, I have no idea. I know, that but... is so funny. I just, I remember reading that and being like, <laughs> this is actually ridiculous. It'd be like us doing it a year ago, two years ago. Like, I couldn't have fought for somebody's life. No. In like a marketing way. They'd probably be better being trained by people from the districts because they're more used to fighting and stuff in that yeah, regard. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's just so... The whole thing is so bizarre. If there was like one thing you could change about this book, what would you change? Like a character or a Ooh. plot hole or... I think... I think I would have killed off Lucy Gray. In the games? Yeah. I, I think it would have think... made it a bit more interesting. 
I do think it... I think it, the book would have then had to be shorter. It is long. <laughs> yeah. Not that that's necessarily a good or a bad thing. No. I mean, because then a lot of the stuff in 12 wouldn't have happened if she'd literally just been dead. That's true. But I do just think it was unrealistic that she won, even with the help of... Even with the help yeah. of Coriolanus. Like, to be fair, I don't think he even helped her that much. Like, I mean, yes, he deterred the snakes, but I think she would have... She was a smart girl. I think, in a way, he almost patronised her a little bit. Oh, he definitely did. Like, a girl... And he even says at the beginning, like, it's the biggest insult to have the poorest female. Like, well... (laughs) That's a bit classist and sexist. flashes of the snow we know in the films and the original trilogy, you see that forming in his teenage years. Well, and do you think as well, like, if you think about the parallels between Lucy Gray and Katniss... Yeah, I was thinking that. District 12 girls. I think that's why Katniss angers President Snow so much because he is so bitter about Lucy Gray. And he he loved Lucy Gray. I think he really did. Even if it was your classic first love. He did love her. So perhaps the reason he was so freaked out by Katniss and couldn't let her just get on with her rebellion or couldn't (laughs) couldn't just kill her, Mm. perhaps that was why. I found the storyline of Lucy Gray and her original lover in District oh, Billy. 12, Billy. I found that quite rushed. It was like it was sort of thrown in, the explanation of it at least, in District 12. I just, I felt like it didn't quite work. Yes, I know what you mean. Like with the mayor's daughter and stuff, they never really fully explained it. Yes. It that just felt was... like an addition. Yeah, more of a like a filler episode almost. Mm-hmm. That's why I think it could have been shorter as well. Yes, there like, were bits, there were unnecessary bits for sure. But in a book that long, what is it, like 500 pages? Five, of yeah. course, there's going to be bits that you don't mm. necessarily need. And like the rebel escape, I know Sejanus needed to die, but again, the rebel escape just. It didn't seem that well formulated. Yes. I, I was getting a bit confused then because there were so many random people that were suddenly brought in. And yeah, I kept there was a lot, of, them. a lot of people <laughs> with names I couldn't. Yeah. I couldn't like remember very quickly. Yeah. Well, it's like in the actual games, I just I could not remember any of the tributes names or any of the mentors names. Well, I think it's actually so good that he had that list in there. Of, yeah, because like, I kept <laughs> flicking back to it. I had a post-it note on the page trying That's to remember so who cute. was who because I just couldn't. Must remember. be why she did it because obviously you need those kind of funky names. And it was for herself. Probably. She couldn't remember as well. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if she wanted to write a prequel or if she was sort of made to by managers. Yeah, I wonder if she'd ever thought about what happened before Mm. when she was writing the first three. I mean, I feel like she's got to at least thought of where Snow came from. Yeah. Whether he was like... To be able to develop... Part of the dynasty or whether he was... Yeah. You know, or if she then created Lucy Gray making all of these parallels subsequently... Mm. You know? I think it's kind of freaky how they're fighting for university. Um, yes. As the mentors, it's like life in university. How can you compare them? Like, it, Yeah, it's... it seems very frivolous, doesn't mm. it? What they're doing and very sort of superficial. Like, if you don't go to uni, you are still going to live in the capital. Yeah, it's not as if you're going to be banished to the districts or something. Yeah, whereas if these people lose the Hunger Games, they literally die. Yeah. Everybody that went into that those first 24 people, <laughs> everybody died. Mm-hmm. 
except Lucy Gray. But then well, she we disappears. Don't even know. She disappears. And frankly, you would think that she probably did get killed at yeah. some point or died of starvation, you know? I was kind of hoping Coriolanus would just work his way up through the ranks as a peacekeeper, like go off to his officer training camp, then maybe get higher up than that and then become president rather than sort of being handed it by Dr. Gould or something. Yes. I, so I think I'd respect yeah. him a lot more. I always wonder if he did know where Lucy Gray ended up and like just left her to it, you know? Do you think? I mean, you we'll never know. Yeah. I think he, he does really have a soft her. spot. Yeah. Yeah. Like I think in the, I can't remember if it's in the books, but I know in the films he has a granddaughter and yes, he does he seem does. to really love and cherish her. So it's interesting to see. But that where he does his have kids come love. from? Well, I think he marries somebody from the school. Because he's like, I can't remember her name, but he says, oh, this girl will do. I'll marry her. That will look good. And it's like, okay. <laughs> you you go do that. It's such a stages thing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. But I'm definitely glad I read it. No, me too. And it took me back to year seven, yeah. Sophie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. It was like reading Divergent or something again. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Like, maybe we should do another episode. And do yeah. <laughs> I wonder if she'll do a prequel to Divergent then. Well, I mean, Divergent. I mean, it's literally of... the same as Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> you could just relabel that book and yeah, it would be, be exactly the same. the same. But thank you very much for coming thank on the so show. Thank you so much for having me. I've had a great time. And we will get back to the show now. Many thanks to Sophie for joining us today. It's very nice to have a different perspective once again. Somebody who's not my mum this week. I promise I have some friends. Um, obviously in a pandemic it's more difficult than ever to try and get people on the show but for the remainder of the show I thought it would be interesting to look at the parallels between Lucy Gray and Katniss Everdeen and then look more closely at some quotations from the book then a music recommendation and then just a basic summary just to plan it out for you I know I love a plan can't focus without a plan bit of a problem but anyway I'm sure you all know who Candice Everdeen is. She's the emblem of the Hunger Games trilogy, of course, played by the wonderful Jennifer Lawrence in the films. Her hair is just amazing. I can never get over how good her plait looks. Obviously, she has so many people for hair and makeup, but in the arena, she just really manages to look good with all the dirt and the plait. It's just pretty impressive at this point. So I think Lucy Gray's entrance into the Hunger Games is very reminiscent of Katniss. Obviously, Katniss volunteers as tribute for her sister Prim. And when Lucy Gray is chosen as a tribute, it is very evident that the mayor has orchestrated her to be picked. It's definitely been rigged. And then she puts a snake down the mayor's daughter's dress, which is funny. Like, it's not going to cause her any harm. So it is more for humour than anything. I think she does actually wet herself, which is really quite humiliating. But I think the fact that Lucy Gray comes from District 12, you know, she's a bit of a a rebel without a cause. She She's not going to, like, connect to the games easily. She's not going to be an easy tribute. I think that explains President Snow's intrinsic hatred of her and District 12. Um, because obviously Lucy Gray is from District 12, Katniss Everdeen is from District 12, they have the same fieriness. It, it does almost, almost 
make me sympathetic for him because it must bring back some really painful memories for him when Katniss is chosen because the relationship between Katniss and Prim is really reminiscent of Lucy Gray and the rest of the Covey. They have a very familial bond. They look out for their own. And I think they're mainly forced to do that in the districts because they don't have anybody else. It's very much each for their own. So I think that is one of Lucy Gray's good points. As I said with Sophie, I did find her slightly irritating. But all in all, you know, she worked hard. She provides for her family. You can't argue with that. I also find it interesting that a romance blossomed between Katniss and Peter and obviously Snow and Lucy Gray. District 12 seems to be the place of love. Um, obviously, it's a different dichotomy between Snow and Lucy Gray because they come from two completely different worlds. But even with Katniss and Peter, they come from different classes in a way because he was a baker and I mean Katniss really had nothing and I suppose Katniss and Peter do work out in the end even though I will say I was team Gale the whole way but he let us down in Mockingjay I, I kind of saw it coming to be honest now the songs that Katniss sings clearly remind Snow too much of Lucy Gray because in the prequel we actually see Lucy Gray singing the Hanging Tree song herself and the In the Meadow song. And God, I cannot imagine how much this must have infuriated Snow. To have the songs his lost love used to sing to him and he thought she was the love of his life, really. And then Katniss Everdeen shows up. Someone wins the Hunger Games and just makes his life a living hell, pretty much. So, again, with Katniss and Lucy Gray, they both use music to humanise themselves as tributes and sort of show them as something other than the districts. Lucy Gray says quite early on in the novel, the show's not over until the Mockingjay sings. So I think it's really cool that Suzanne Collins has linked the Mockingjay from the prequel all the way through the series. Because um, obviously the final book is called Mockingjay and it, it really, the book shows the significance of the bird and it, it goes into more detail about how the capital generated these birds and how it, it's quite sad that they've destroyed all of these birds' lives. But anyway, they're the capital. What can we expect? It does make me wonder, actually, if Haymitch and Katniss Everdeen's stylist knew of Snow's past and his relationship between Snow and the Mockingjay and Lucy Gray and that could be perhaps why they made Katniss is this sort of emblem for Mockingjays because they knew it would get Snow's attention they knew it would stir something within him maybe I suppose though it, it's a very fine line because it has the potential to both anger him and make him favour her more so I think it's interesting that Suzanne Collins has brought it up in this book again and there's a line in the Hanging Tree song. It's such an eerie song. It really does. You can imagine it being sung at the Hanging Tree. But one of the lines is, where they strung up a man, they say he murdered three. And this prophesizes Snow's further murders in the novel. I'm sure he murders more people in his life, perhaps not directly. But in the novel, he explicitly says to Lucy Gray, I've murdered three people. So... It is quite sinister in a way that Lucy Gray has been singing this and it is, in a way, a tale of Snow's own life. But, of course, he's not strung up. But he forces Sejanus to be strung up 
I find it quite exciting, actually. This is not a particularly intellectual point, but this novel is actually published by Scholastic, which I was quite surprised by. I don't know if the original trilogy are published by them as well, but I would have thought it would be somebody more major. Um, But I don't know about you, but we used to have death fairs at school and everybody used to get so excited, not even about the books, but about all of the stationery, and I'm pretty sure we got free bookmarks and other things, and it just, it makes me reminisce about first reading The Hunger Games even more. Uh, I think being an early teenager is a weird time for anybody, but literally everybody loved The Hunger Games, so it was something that you could really connect with people over and enjoy together without the fear of being judged because it wasn't cool. So I think both the books and the films were so vastly watched and adored. It really, I wouldn't say they're the books that defined our generation, but it, it definitely was up there, I would say. Maybe with Harry Potter, although I feel like Harry Potter was perhaps past our time, but I feel bad reading Harry Potter now because J.K. Rowling is a, a terrible person. So... This novel, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, was actually met with quite mixed feedback, which I don't find too surprising, because I think many authors find when you write a series, it's done and dusted, you know, you've made films on it, it's been a pretty big deal, and then they come out a fair number of years later with a prequel. I think critics are going to be underwhelmed. The Guardian was quite impressed. They said it was pleasing for fans. I mean, it's not exactly showering it, in praise but I think that it it does what it says on the tin it pleases the fans it gives fans more of the information they're looking for and for that I really appreciate Suzanne Collins because I think she could have quite easily made it more into a money-making machine and made it more into something that would be this massive like blockbuster film but she really has tailored it to the fans which I appreciate however the Telegraph said When it comes to writing the murkiest backwaters of the human psyche, Collins is fathoms out of her depth, which I think is quite rude. I don't think it's fair to say she's out of her depth. I think she's just exploring something she hasn't really written about before because she does definitely explore more of the mental aspect of the characters, whereas the original trilogy is certainly more action-packed. But just because it might not be a book they like themselves, it doesn't mean that she's bad at it. It's not the best written novel out there, but I enjoyed it. And at the end of the day, that is all that matters when you're reading a book. So in our more in-depth discovery of the novel, I thought it'd be interesting to look at the, I don't know if you can call it a national anthem, but the anthem of the city of Panem. And the first line of it goes, Gem of Panem, mighty city, through the ages shine anew. Now, I just find it funny they refer to the city as a gem, like it's some undiscovered discreet thing when really it's the most flamboyant place I think I've ever seen in my life. And the word mighty, it just also contradicts the acts of cannibalism that Snow details in the beginning and just the the horrors of the war, which it, the fact that the war happened a decade ago, it's really not that long a period of time. The city is still definitely on its knees. It has not recovered. People are still traumatised. There's still raging poverty, as can be seen by Snow. You know, they were some of the richest families. And now they 
have nothing. I think what I find most shocking is the lack of food. I think that really indicates just how poor they are. So the first shocking moment in the book for me is when one of the tributes slits the throats of one of the mentors and Collins does this at the very end of a chapter. She's very good at making the end of chapters um, shocking. And the sentence is this. In one movement, the tribute yanked Arachne forward and slit her throat. This emphatic sentence really captures, I think, Collins' writing style. She doesn't faff around with frivolous words, which I respect because I think it makes this sentence even more impactful. I remember reading it and I had to put the book down for a second because I was like, this just came out of nowhere. I think it makes it more shocking. And I've always seen this as a great piece of advice to writers. And that is to sort of under-describe, don't over-describe. If you're writing about the horrors of war, I read somewhere you're meant to describe the child's burning socks on the side of the road, not the the raging fire that's tearing the house apart. It's the little details, I think, that make it seem more real as well. So this is definitely the first shocking thing to happen in the book. And I know we touched on this a bit with Sophie, but Snow is obviously horrified by this attack. He doesn't remember the war too vividly because he was really pretty young when the war happened. But we have to remember at this point, you know, the cameras are avidly watching Snow and all of the other mentors to see how they're interacting with the tributes. And I think he only really helps because the cameras are watching. It says in the book, like, oh, I must remember to act like this and act like that. And I think it shows the beginning of his master manipulation. At 18 years old, he's immediately thinking about the way he's presented to the media. And, you know, this mentor wasn't really his friend, but if he didn't help, his tribute wouldn't get things in the arena, which I guess you could say is selfless in a way because he is doing it for the tribute, but it's also for himself. As I said with Sophie... He's only a mentor so he can get a scholarship to university, which is just mad, really, weighing up life in university. Education is in no means alive. So I think it, it it's funny to see toxic productivity has still <laughs> infiltrated its way into the Hunger Games. So there was also a very similar situation with the tour of the arena. So before the tributes themselves go into the arena they go and look at it with their mentors suss things out I think they have a tactics meeting or something and a bomb goes off so it's again at the end of a chapter and the sentence says then the world exploded again another cliffhanger and I I can't imagine how traumatizing it would be for the mentors to face something that they really thought they'd left behind in childhood because, again, as I said before, they were so young, I think the war hasn't perhaps had much of an intrinsic impact on their life. But I think this could uncover some memories that might be deeply hidden away. I would say they all definitely need therapists um, <laughs> after this. But I did find it slightly frustrating with this bomb because they never really say who or why planted the bombs in the arena. Because... As they say in the novel, it's locked all year round, apart from when the tributes enter the arena. So it's kind of confusing to me as to why somebody would target this place, because 
the rebels from the districts wouldn't want to target it because then they'd just be killing their own. There's no point the capital doing it because the tributes are just going to die anyway. It it really just doesn't make sense. I feel like Collins just needed to find a way for some of the tributes to save the mentors' lives because, for example, Lucy Gray literally saved Snow's life in the arena. And I think because of that, he feels indebted to her in a way and it only further, it sort of acts as a catalyst for his infatuation of her because in the capital, it's very much a transactional thing. If somebody helps you, you then owe them. And I think he he feels it's now his responsibility, not just as a mentor, but on a personal level to protect Lucy Gray because at the end of the day, she did save his life. As the novel progressive, Snow has so many internal monologues about Lucy Gray. It's quite funny how he presents this stoic exterior and then he asks himself these incessant questions. It does seem to be an almost scary level of obsession. It's, it's like his obsession with Katniss Everdeen, but it, it's even creepier with Katniss Everdeen, I suppose, because then he's an old man, whereas at least now he is the same age as Lucy Gray. But I think it just shows that he is inherently incapable of loving or doing anything in moderation. He does seem really quite possessive. He says, like, I saved her and grey like a winter day. He's desperately trying to connect it to his name Snow and to salvage a connection. He thinks they belong together as fate. Now, when they attempt to run away together, there's... It, well, it literally masks, lasts a matter of hours. It's in the description of the weather is thick, cold raindrops. And I think here we can safely say it is a classic use of pathetic fallacy. You know, it's just foreshadowing what is about to happen. Their escape was never going to work. They didn't plan it. They don't have money. They don't know how to survive. You know, he's grown up in the capital. She's always had the COVID. They don't even know each other that well, really. They've hardly spent any time together. And when they have, it's been in a completely different environment of the Capitol or at the Hob on a Saturday night. That is not an equal comparison to a life together and living together. And I think it is quite foolish of them to think that it would work. I know they want to have this sort of unbridled sense of hope, but I think they should have been more realistic. The fact that Snow was even questioning it in the first place to leave to go f- to his officer training shows it would just never work. So when Snow returns back from his escapade with Lucy Gray once he leaves her for good, I'd be interested to find out what actually happened to her. The end of that escapade really does, I think, represent the end of any compassion Snow has, and there's two quotations. The lake water had reduced his mother's rose-scented powder to a nasty paste. And then also this one. The photos stuck together and shredded when he tried to separate them. Now, this photo is a photo of, I think, his family, and the fact that he throws them away because they're ruined, it signifies the end of his chapter of boyhood and childhood and the beginning of his reign of President Snow, and I find it quite a chilling image, really. I think he does have a significant lack of maternal love. He really only gets this from Tigress. 
is their grandma they live with they call her the grandma not just grandma or grandma or whatever it's a lack of personal attachment it makes it sound really formal and I think it shows how she's still so desperately trying to hold on to her status that they had in the past and that has clearly had such a big impact on so because he's so desperately trying to uphold this image that they're still wealthy and they still have their lives together and they're well-fed and I mean the novel starts off with him trying to salvage a shirt for I think it's the reaping at the very beginning and he doesn't even have a singular shirt that's applicable in it it's hinted that Tigress has to do some some pretty horrible things in order to get money to put food on the table so I think it is just chilling when he disregards his background in a way by throwing them away it's not just him throwing stuff in the bin they're his final possessions because as far as he knows he's about to go off to become an officer he's never gonna see them again these are his last attachment to home so I found it really interesting to have the revelation about Tigress actually because obviously in Mockingjay Katniss goes to stay at her house briefly and Tigress I think we mentioned with Sophie says I'm not pretty enough for snow anymore and I just find it so shocking that the only person in his life that has shown him this maternal and unconditional love he then eventually casts out I actually liked and sympathised Snow at the beginning, which I find shocking. I didn't think that was going to be the case. It was quite confusing, really, because he wasn't as obsessed with the capital. You know, at the beginning of the novel, the capital could do wrong, whereas by the end, he just completely respects everything the capital does. He deems it as necessary, which I think is where him and Tigress differ, because... She was exposed to more of the war because I think she's about four years older or maybe a bit older than that. And so she remembers more. She witnessed her parents' death. She's been working for years already. She's exhausted. And when Snow goes off to be a peacekeeper, she's just left on her own to fend for themselves, which is just... I feel so sorry for her. And it's kind of disheartening to know that even when Snow becomes president, she's then cast out again. I think she she does eventually um, be able to lead out her dreams as a designer because obviously when we see her in Mockingjay, she has all these elaborate clothes and it appears that she's in a, a sort of sewing workshop. But I'm just so shocked that Snow just appears not to love her anymore, really. I think he might have done it for appearances sake rather than him not actually loving her. But I guess that we'll never know. I would love to see another book, actually, that leads even further up to The Hunger Games or maybe a book from her point of view, actually. I think that would be really interesting. And I would like to see to what extent she is involved with the rebels because she could be a very important informant for them because... When she was in with Snow, she was so close with him. He told her everything. He's one of the only people he told everything to. So I would love to find out more from the Mockingjay time period about what her life is actually like. So the whole novel does seem to be this steady progression 
into the horrible and cruel President Snow that we know. I feel betrayed by him in a way because at the beginning it feels as if he has real promise which is so stupid because you know what he's going to turn into you know that's not going to change it sounds stupid but it's a bit like when you watch the film Titanic it's as if you expect them to be saved and you expect the boat not to sink but of course they do it happened in history it's going to happen in the film and it, it it's the same with this you know snow turns into a monster well I don't know perhaps he doesn't even turn into a monster I think he's always had these tendencies from such a young age which is what makes the novel so deeply disturbing I suppose because he's only 18 the novel is not over a particularly long period of time I think he's 19 by the end of it and he is already just so calculated and he just has such a disregard for empathy or sympathy. He doesn't care about other people unless it furthers his own life progression or, I suppose, the progression of the capital and his establishment. So Sejanus's death is obviously a turning point again for Snow's narrative arc. Sejanus tries his best to preserve a world that's riddled with corruption, so... I think it shows that he didn't stand a chance. And I just, I find it so tragic that Snow betrays him because Sejanus loved him with his whole heart. He didn't have any friends. You know, he had a, a rocky relationship with his father. Snow was all he had. And I think when Snow records Sejanus with the Jabberjay, it, it really does cement his future as the barbaric president Snow that we know. And we have to question, there's a scene just after Sejanus is hanging. We have to question if he's actually upset at the death of Sejanus or if he just feels guilty. I think it is genuinely just because he feels guilty. He says repeatedly throughout the novel that he finds Sejanus really irritating. So I don't see why that would have changed when he was so annoyed that Sejanus was keeping secrets from him. I don't think it for him it wasn't even what the content of the secrets were it was more that snow has to know everything as he keeps saying snow lands on top he has to be in charge effectively so if sejanus has secrets snow can't be in charge so my music recommendation for this week might be cheating a little bit so i'm sorry for that because i know well my music recommendation is some of lord's songs and i know she did write some of the soundtrack for mocking jay so that's probably the only reason why I thought of her for this. But I think she captures the eeriness and creepiness of the book. So specifically, her songs, The Right in the Dark and Liability, remind me of something that Lucy Gray might sing. Because I think when the Covey play all together, they would have these sort of folky, fun songs. But then when Lucy Gray is on alone, she really manages to encapsulate and entrance people through having more soulful and sad songs. I think these would be the perfect songs to listen to whilst you read this. Or, to be honest, I think you could just put the whole of Lord's um, discography, is that the right word? When it's all of the songs I have. Because she has some upbeat ones and some sad ones, so I feel like it would mould well with the 
action sequences in the book and with the obviously horrific deaths and there are quite there are some quite moving conversations between characters when they're having conversations about the meanings of life and where the fate of humanity and the capital and the districts is headed because it it's very much at a turning point when the book is set you know the games aren't very popular which I was very surprised about because I assumed they'd been popular right from the beginning so I, I quite enjoyed listening to the ways the student mentors were brainstorming the ideas to make the games more popular because even in the first Hunger Games books it's it's basically the love island of the capital which is nice no, that 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 sounds really morbid but it is you know it's a reality tv show that's on every day they can't leave they go a bit stir crazy so actually it's a decent comparison minus the killing um although i suppose people get eliminated on love island so to a certain degree yes um especially with the voting it makes it interactive but anyway i'm getting off topic here Overall, the plot is, I would say, very predictable. But at the moment, you know, that's quite nice. We are in a pandemic. I can't deal with too many shocking things happening in my life. I think it would all get a bit too much for me. Um, So it's interesting to see the way the games was properly created and how it's manifested into the Hunger Games we know from the original trilogy. And it's interesting to find out President Snow used to have a heart because I I didn't expect him to have a love interest I honestly thought he was just going to be one of those people that never really finds love because at the end he seems to have a very pragmatic approach to marriage um I think as I mentioned with Sophie he marries just for the sake of it and he does appear to love his granddaughter but apart from her and Tigris sorry they seem to be the only people he shows true love and compassion to and then he just completely disregards his cousin anyway so hopefully his granddaughter's safe although I feel like she might actually get killed when Prim does I'm not sure but he we know he he struggles to love you know so I think I would rate it a four out of five as I've said it is not the best written book ever but I really really enjoyed it and it has just been a joy to read and it's that's been very rare recently so it's been very refreshing for me and it's also quite motivating because it's quite long but the writing's big you get through it so quickly it makes you feel like you're this avid reader and you're really smart because you get through so many books when in reality it's just an easy read the snakes did freak me out on the pages though so if you're not a fan of snakes this book will freak you out because they're on the pages, they're in the story, they're on the cover, they're in the title, it they're everywhere. Um, so next week's episode is on Rupi Kaur's new book, Homebody. And I'll be joined by my friend Abby. She is all the way in Lincoln at the moment, which is really sad. I miss her. Um, so hopefully we'll be able to have a phone call and chat about it. And this will be the first poetry book we look at. So it'll be interesting to see how it compares to the other books we've looked at so far. And I have read, I think, all of her books, 
this is the first one she's brought out for a while, so I think it'll be interesting to see if her writing's developed and how... I think she wrote it during the pandemic, so it'll be very interesting to see if the pandemic has affected it and just her viewpoint on life. I feel like I need some guidance from her at the moment. Poets just... They're quite comforting because there's that History Boys quote where it says literature's like a hand has come out and taken yours and thoughts and feelings you thought were your own, you find out aren't. That was not eloquent at all, but it poetry really encapsulates that nobody is alone, which I think is what we all need at the moment. So thank you very much for tuning in. I feel like I've been prattling on for ages at this point, but... I could just talk about this book forever because it's just such a fun book as well. I know that sounds morbid when there's so many deaths, but I really did have fun reading it and I could definitely see myself rereading it in the future. I think I would notice different things despite the language itself being simple. I think the narrative isn't. Um, So thank you very much for listening. Please tune in next Monday again, 12 to 1. I'll be here. And this has been the Booming Book Club.